Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Jane Caro is a much-loved festival friend, having participated in many events over the years. In this session, which was recorded at the 2019 festival, she speaks to Meredith Jaffe about her book, Accidental Feminists. Um, amongst her many hats, most of us know Jane Carroll as an author, social commentator, columnist, speaker and broadcaster. A browse, a browse through her published work demonstrates that she is passionate about many subjects, including but not limited to public education, gender equality and generally uh, hell-raising in, in the nicest possible way. <laughs> Um, yes, she likes disrupting the status quo. It's no accident she's hashtag destroy the joint. She's very good at it, as we all know, <laughs> and I think it's also proven by her winning in 2018 the Walkley Award for Women in Leadership. Well-deserved, Jane. Will you join me in welcoming Jane Carroll? I should have also mentioned that she also has managed to raise two outspoken feminists as well, so she deserves a big round of applause for making sure we keep it going. <laughs> Let's start with the very obvious question. What do you mean by the term accidental feminist? What I mean by that term is that uh, this book is about my generation, so it's about the women who were born predominantly in the 50s and 60s, who are now the cohort over 50 over 55. And I think that when we were young, when we were children, we didn't expect to change the world. No one expected us to change the world. Um, what was expected of us was what had been expected of all the generations of women that had come before us, and that was that we would, sure, we'd go to school, we'd outperform the boys. Women have been outperforming boys in school for over 100 years, but no one cared about that. Who cared? Um, we'd um, work for a little while, then we'd meet, as one of my correspondents in the book puts it, a spunk. And um, if we were lucky, or the spunkiest we could uh, find, and uh, we'd get married and we'd have children. End of story. That was how women's lives had unfolded for millennia, I suppose, and the same was expected. But what happened, of course, was not that. What happened primarily, I think, because of technology, which in the end is what always drives major change, is, and it was the pill, and also very rarely mentioned, but I think uh, deserves more of uh, more accolades, the tampon, um, that really made a difference to my generation of women's lives because for the first time we were able to go out into the public sphere and contribute in ways that never women never really had been before, mostly because we could control our fertility. Yes, yes, there had been contraception prior to the pill, I know that, but I am a torn condom. So it wasn't particularly effective, whereas the pill was the most effective so far. And so women could choose when to have children, how many children to have, what kind of gaps they'd have between the children they had, and that made staying in the paid workforce, going back into the paid workforce, not easy, but doable. And so the thing about this generation of what I call accidental feminists is that we're a revolutionary generation. No one's noticed because we're all older women and they don't notice anything that happens to us. But it, we are the first generation where the whole cohort 
have mostly earned their own money for most of their lives. Um, yes, working class women, women who fell on hard times have always worked for a living. That's, there's nothing new about that. But before my generation, women who had to work for a living were pitied. It became an aspiration when I was leaving school and going to university. We were encouraged to think about a career. And um, that was a huge change. And what I was interested in doing in this book was looking at how that had worked out. One of the most critical things for many Australians, not just women, was the wonderful free education that we were was made available to us by the Whitlam government. Forever more will I thank him for my educational opportunities. Um, what was the before and after the access to university level education for women? Made a huge difference. Um, I start the book with a story about a, a friend of mine when we were in year, well, now it's called year 10, then it was fourth form and um, there was a, an exam called the school certificate. I don't even know if it still exists. And in those days it was quite an important exam. Uh, in fact, the majority of students left school um, after that exam and went out into the workforce. And this young woman was very distressed because she was actually really good at school and she wanted to go on to um, what was fifth and sixth form years 11 and 12 and had ambitions to go to university and her father had said to her, this is 72, so before I think Whitlam was um, elected and her father said to her, oh no, I, you know, I can't afford to have all my, all my kids at uni, your brother's going. And she knew that her brother, who was not academic, would rather poke his eyes out with a fork but sh she was going to miss out. And she had to leave in full form. She was made to leave school in full form and go to work. And that happened a lot. Um, and then when Whitlam brought in free university education, that changed a whole lot of things. Not just for my generation. I mean, I would have gone to university because I come from a very privileged middle class background, whether there had been free university or not. That wasn't an issue. But what really changed too was that, and in fact, Christopher Pine on Q&A said something that had me yelling at the television. Actually, every time Christopher Pine said something <laughs> on Q&A, I was generally yelling at the television. But um, he said on Q&A that the Whitlam education reforms had mainly benefited middle class people. What he failed to say was that those people he called middle-class people were mostly mature-age women. And what they did was they went to university for the first time. Like my friend who'd been stopped going by her father, these were generations of women for whom that was their experience too. And when it was free, they could go. Now, this had lots of advantages and basically I think it was a great thing, but on a personal level, I'm a little more conflicted because one of the mature age women who decided to go to university then was my mother. She did the HSC the same year I did, went to the university I went to and did many of the same subjects I did. And it's one thing to go to university with someone who reminds you of your mother. It's quite another to go, actually go to university with your actual mother. Um, so there was a downside. But those women really went on to trailblaze. A lot of those mature age students who did incredibly well at university because they were driven by a sense of injustice. I had something denied that I really wanted. Also, they worked incredibly hard because they were... What people forget is that the messaging that was sent to women of my generation and the generations previously was really overt about women's inferiority. 
Mad Men, if those of you have watched it, is not, it's, a, it's a documentary, really, in its attitude, in the way it displays the attitudes to women that were common at that time. Um, there was no shame in saying women weren't as smart as men, they weren't as clever as men. Uh, there was a clip that a lot of people have used when they were going to interview me about this book where they've shown two Australian married women, I'd say in about 1962 or 63 by their clothes, debating whether or not women should get a university education. And there was one of them who was saying they shouldn't and her reasoning was it made them dissatisfied with their lot. This was a, um, an argument that was put without any embarrassment. And so a lot of the women who went into university were terrified. They had bought the idea that this was too hard for them. And then, of course, they actually worked really hard on their first assignment. They got it back with a high distinction and went, what's this bullshit about this being really hard? And then, of course, when they went into the workforce and men had told them, oh, no, it's really difficult, you won't be able to do it. Um, it'll, have a, it'll have an effect on your womb. Um, I always loved that, how they used to say to me when I tried to get into advertising, you could get, only get into creative through dispatch. And, you, and they said, oh, we can't have women in dispatch because you have to carry big parcels. I've always loved how, you, you know, in those days women couldn't carry parcels. No one ever worried when we were struggling to hold a tantrum-throwing, squirming four-year-old. Apparently that didn't do our wounds any damage. Um, so... I think that the free university not only did it give women opportunity, but it also revealed to them that they could do it, that they could compete and they could win. And I think the other thing that's interesting is I, I am from the working class, so my mother, my grandmother, etc., were working women. Um, but my mother did to me what your mother did to you and went to university at the same time as me at the same bloody university and did the same degree. Thank Jesus, God. I didn't know it happened to other people. <laughs> oh, my Thank God, God this she is like an encounter group. I know, she majored in history, though, so I was a little, you know, a little bit relieved. Yeah, my mother majored in history, too. Oh, oh my God, what is it with that? No. <laughs> but it's so true that, that, that when you talk about this paycheck, my mother had a paycheck because... So that's what working-class women do. They always work. But it was the access to education that really liberated my mother, I found. So it's not, it's not just the paycheck that's important, is it? It's the ability to actually maximise the amount of that paycheck is what the education also allows you, isn't it? And it also was at that time that uh, what we now call second-wave feminism, but at the time called itself women's liberation. Mm. It's interesting how that term has gone out of fashion, but I quite like it, um, Women's Liberation Movement, which talked a lot about, um, you know, the importance of women having their own money and therefore being able to leave bad marriages and abusive marriages and getting rid of things like the way jobs had been divided into jobs in the paper for men and boys and jobs in the paper for women and girls. Some of you are old enough like me to remember when that was common. And... Um, Equal pay, of course, was legislated in 1969. Legislation is not as powerful as we'd hoped it would be. Yeah, that's right. Um, and the other thing that's really interesting is that you talk about uh, women being liberated by contraception and the education and the ability to earn their own money. But it's still come at a price, hasn't it, for women? And what, where is this broken for us? I think it's broken, particularly for my generation, and I fear, unfortunately, we aren't doing anything to fix it. And I realised one of the reasons I decided I had to write a book, well, apart from the fact that Louise Adler asked me to, was that um, 
I was feeling a bit smug about this, our generation, first generation, where the whole cohorts mostly earn their own money. This is pretty cool, aren't we? Awesome. And always when I feel that way, something comes along and belts me in the head. And that's what happened. I then heard that horrifying statistic about the fact that the fastest growing group amongst the homeless are women over 55. And I thought, how can this be? How can we have these two things happening in the same group of women and they're so contradictory and so that got me on the journey of researching what, what's broken. And basically what was broken I think is almost encapsulated in the thing I remember being said um, around the time when a lot of women were going into um, the workforce for the first time, into career-oriented jobs. And there was a common thing where men would say, half as a joke, they would say, well, you know, if you want to go to work, that's all very well, but just so long as my dinner's on the table at six o'clock. Do you remember that kind of thing? Everybody thought that was hilarious, except what it's really telling you is if you want to go to work, you're going to do it on top of everything else you do. I'm not changing. I'm not even going to change the time I eat my dinner. Everything in my life is going to stay the same. You want to go changing things, you go changing things. And we kind of bought that. We went, okay... All right, um, and so we put the paid work on top of the childcare, on top of the domestic duties, on top of the rushing home and cooking the dinner and making sure it was on the table at six o'clock. And what we then found was you couldn't do full-time work and all of that. And so what we did was we traded pay for flexibility. And at the time, we thought that was a wise thing to do. It allowed us to do some work and have some money, but it also meant we could do the traditional so-called female roles. What we didn't think about was that we were not accumulating money for our old age. And, of course, basically women come in and out of the workforce. We have a peripatetic kind of uh, record in the workforce. We tend to work if you're going to be part-time. If you take time out to have children, then take time out to care for them, then come back in. You often have to go back in at an entry-level job where you might have risen quite high before you left. Um, you often go back part-time so you don't get a senior role and so you're being paid a lot less, even if a senior role was never what you were after, if, even if you're... Um, working in another uh, kind of occupation, you're still doing less hours, so you're earning less work, you can get less overtime because you're the one that's got to pick the kids up from childcare, you're the one that's got to get them to school, you're, it's your responsibility. Um, so you're in and out, in and out, and you are in low, tend to be concentrated in low-paid occupations. Australia has one of the most gender-segregated workforces in the world. 60% of us work in an industry which is dominated by one gender or the other, and this will shock you, but those occupations dominated by men are paid better than those occupations dominated by women. So you can see what's happening. Women are getting corralled into lower-paid occupations. The thought being, oh, well, your husband will look after you, but at the same time as the um, change in education, etc., came in, no-fault divorce, and the change in the family law, law courts. And a lot of women were in bloody awful relationships and they were now able to leave. And that's great. And I wouldn't for a minute argue that a woman or a man in a terrible marriage should stay in one. They should not. We only have one life. Get out and make as much of it as you possibly can. But often women would do the leaving and they would feel guilty. So they would not take 
the money they were entitled to. They would assuage their guilt by, by allowing the man to keep the business or the assets they'd own. They might take the house and the kids and they'd work part-time and, you know, try to pay off the mortgage. And then we add insult to injury because as women age, first of all, they get elderly parents. Well, who are the people who tend to take time out to look after elderly parents? I know that it's mostly daughters, not only because the statistics tell me so, but because there is a, a home care agency in the North Shore of Sydney, which I see every time I go to the, my local cinema because it's got one of those ads up, which is called Dutiful Daughters. What a nasty little name that is. And there is no such similar agency called Dutiful Sons. So that, the, the sense in which it is our job to care. And of course then maybe we get to our 50s and we think, at last, kids have grown up, elderly parents have, well, you know, they might have died, but <laughs> maybe they've found a good place. Who knows? Um, but whatever, you're no longer caring responsibilities are necessarily as onerous. And you're ready and raring to go. You've got your education, you've got your energy, you've got uh, the time and you've got experience. You know, you're wiser than you were when you were young. Guess what the average age for retirement is for women in Australia? And by retirement, I'm using inverted commas, I don't think it's voluntary, it's 52.3 years. So it's really interesting, isn't it? You're too, uh, when you're young, you're about to have a baby. Then you do actually have a baby, so you can't be taken seriously. Then you're bringing up children, so you can't be taken seriously. And lo and behold, you suddenly get there and they go, oh, sorry, you're too old. I sometimes look back over my career and think, when was that day when I was the right age for the workforce? I wish I'd noticed. And yet, statistics prove that if you get one woman out of poverty, she brings four people with her. And that's the, that's the other exasperating factor about all of this, is it's not to society's benefit to have, obviously, anyone homeless, but to have anyone scraping on the breadline is really not useful for us, all of us, anyway, is it? No, and, and it's also particularly galling when you think that the women who are most at risk of facing, uh, really, living out of their car when they're elderly or fearing living out of their car. I've had women tell me that they have to make decisions every winter about whether to heat or eat. Um, you know, awful things. That The reason that they are in that situation is often they were the good girls who did put caring for others ahead of their own needs. They did what they were told to do. And their reward for that is to face real poverty in old age. That is an indictment on us as a society. It is an appalling thing for us to have done, to have used and abused those women and then when we had no use for them anymore. And in this latest budget, I don't know, some of you may have read the article I wrote, I was asked to look at the budget from the point of view of an older woman. Nothing. Nothing. No mention, no interest, couldn't care less. Go live out of your car, ladies. Just don't bother us. It makes me enraged. And the other big one, which you do talk about in the book as well, is this childcare issue. The cost of childcare is horrendous. The childcare workers are paid a pittance. It's 
anyone who's tried to work and have young children knows it's just one nightmare after another. And it's certainly not eased by the time they go to school because then you've got to worry about after-school care, before-school care and vacation care. Why, you'd almost think that the society didn't want us to go into the workplace at all. And really, I think one of the things that you touched on there that obviously struck a chord with me was because we treat childcare as a welfare benefit and not a tax benefit. And, and that is because we didn't design the system, is that correct? Well, there's a lot of debate about it and there's a lot of debate um, amongst feminists as well because some people say if you make childcare a um, tax deduction and uh, if you make parental leave, for example, a I believe parental leave should be a workplace benefit, not a welfare payment because it should be like superannuation and sick leave and holiday pay. Um, but what that does tend to do is benefit women on higher salaries, obviously, because it's worked out as a, a percentage of your salary. The problem is we're not going to solve the, way, the, the gender pay gap problem until we start doing that. Because as long as what we say, and, and, the, and also there's an attitude behind making it a welfare payment. By making it a welfare payment, you are treating women who want to go to work and contribute to the society and use the education they've worked hard to gain as if we're doing them a favour by letting them do it. Rather than they've actually got something of value to offer. The way childcare is now, the cost of it, if you've got two kids in childcare... Um, at the moment in uh, certainly certain areas of Sydney, um, someone, my daughter worked it out, that if, as a teacher, if she went back to work with two kids in childcare, she would not only not be paid to work, she wouldn't actually get any money back out of her paycheck, her family would be $2,000 a month worse off so that she would be paying to go back to work. Well, that is a deliberate disincentive for women to go back to work. And if they're not in, in work, they're not getting super. And if they're not getting super, by the time they're old, they're facing poverty. So it all compounds. Everything has been set up to make us think, oh, look, I'll just be dependent on a man. And that doesn't work either. So it's, it's like a horrible catch-22 and no one's talking about it and we end up with these women who have done the right thing. They've worked in the paid workforce, they've looked after children, they've looked after elderly parents, they've put other people's needs ahead of their own and then when they get to that point, they feel shame about their poverty and they have bought the neoliberal idea that if you um, do less well than someone else, that's your fault. You made the wrong choices, lady. I mean, are you kidding me? This is women from all sorts of backgrounds, women from all sorts of jobs who find themselves in this situation. And it's gendered. It's gendered. Which leads me quite neatly into a couple of topics that I, I'm quite passionate about that are in the book as well. And one of this is this thorny issue of quotas. As you so nicely put it in the book, people don't seem to have a problem when it's a 100% male quota. It only seems to be when we'd like to, to be, you know, geared towards women just ever so slightly more. Um, now, obviously, our Prime Minister is very much in favour of a 100% male quota. He doesn't really like having women in Cabinet. And he did say on International Women's Day that he didn't mind us having a leg up as long as we didn't take someone else's job. I don't know who the someone else was, but I'm kind of guessing he wasn't talking about his wife. Um, 
Why are you in favour of quotas? Okay, there are three reasons why I'm in favour, well, four really, but I'll run through them pretty quickly. First is, we won't get change without it. So, if we want to keep going as we are, no quotas. I've been waiting for 40 years for men to slap themselves on the forehead and go, oh my God, we've been so unfair. He'd take half of everything we've got. It's not going to happen. Um, so we won't get change without it. That's the first thing. And if we don't get change, we will have more generations of women facing living out of their car. And that, to me, is too high a price to pay. The second reason is we have a society full of quotas. Barnaby Joyce was only ever Deputy Prime Minister because of a quota. I know this will shock you because he is so well endowed with merit, but... <laughs> but... The, the Deputy Prime Minister is always the leader of the National Party. It's not a meritorious position, it is a quota position. The current Deputy Prime Minister is a man called Mike McCormick, whom most Australians have never heard of. The man may have merit up the wazoo, but who would know? Um, that's not how he got the job. All cabinets are made up of quotas. You have to have X number of people from this faction and that faction. You have to have people from this state and that state and the other state. Um, on ordinary boards of directors, there's always interstate directors. There are always often staff representatives. Quotas, quotas, quotas and quotas. So it seems peculiar to me that just about everybody else can benefit from a quota, but oh, not women. Oh, no, 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 no. Not you ladies, that's greedy. Can't have that. Um, and there's another reason, and it's from my advertising background. You can change people's attitudes quite successfully, but that doesn't mean it will change their behaviour. The great classic example of this is the drink driving case. For decades when I was young, there were campaigns running which said, don't drink a drive, don't drink a drive, don't drink a drive, don't drink a drive. And it worked to change people's attitudes. You go into research groups and say to the people in the research groups, should you drink and drive? Oh, no, no, you shouldn't drink and drive. Do you drink and drive? Oh, yes, yes, we drink <laughs> and drive. That's human beings for you. What changed behaviour? Random breath testing. You have to have actual consequences. What will change behaviour? Quotas are the random breath testing of gender equality. And the final reason you've already alluded to, and that is people seem to have completely forgotten that 100% quota which operated in favour of men in every educational institution, every business, every um, uh, leadership, government, Everything was controlled by men. Every step feminism has taken has been to fight back against that 100% quota. And that 100% quota probably lasted for about oh, 2,000 years, I think we could say, conservat you know, conserv conservatively. Um, and so I think women are being amazing. We're awfully nice. We're asking for what, 30 40% quotas maybe, maybe 50 if you're a really radical feminist. But actually, actually, if we were going even, Stevens, we'd say 100% for the next 2,000 years and then we'll talk. <laughs> and also men, not all men, obviously. Hashtag not all men. Um, not all men, obviously, but patriarchy seems to have forgotten that that quota system has worked very well for them in terms of giving them a leg up. Quotas do help people to get ahead and that's why we need them.
Well, it's so obvious when you look at the Labor Party that did have a quota system, and we've got those terrible women like Penny Wong and Tanya Plibersek, and they're just useless. I just don't know what they were thinking. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and this is something I'm quite passionate about, is GDP. And one of the things that's so interesting about GDP, and I learnt this from Jane Gleason White and her books, Double Entry and Six Capitals, if you haven't read them, do. And that is that it was an austerity measure uh, in the Depression and with the war, and it was designed as a temporary band-aid to a problem. And there was a very lively discussion about what it included. What didn't it include, Jane? It doesn't include anything really that you can't make, that it isn't a transaction. For example, um, uh, infant formula contributes to GDP. Breastfeeding does not. Do you remember when um, Donald Trump voted against uh, the resolution in the UN about encouraging breastfeeding? That's the reason. Because if you're interested in gross domestic product, you're interested in less breastfeeding and more infant formula. Interesting, isn't it? Um, nuclear weapons contribute to GDP. Um, caring for your elderly mother at home does not. So basically, it, it doesn't, it values the wrong things. And it puts no value on the things that really matter. What's really interesting too is how that has impacted um, I was doing an event not unlike this for the book um, in the Barossa Valley, interestingly enough, and there was a young woman who said, um, look, when I wanted to go back into the workforce after I'd been looking after my children, the workforce regarded my 10 years caring for my kids as if I had done nothing at all, as an occupation of no value whatever. So I had a terrible time getting another job. She said that she and her best friend were talking about this and they'd both had the same experience and they realised that if her best friend had minded her kids and she'd minded her best friend kids, they would have been seen as having had an employment record and it would have helped them get a job. So the problem with GDP is it's completely bloody illogical and stupid and irrational. It makes no goddamn sense. And even the men who invented it at the time, and I'm quoting here, this is back in the 1930s, this is a gentleman called Kuznets, he was an econometrics person. He said, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measure of national income. And yet, today it persists. Oh, it persists, but it's even so it's illogical because it's been estimated and the estimations differ, but the one that always sticks in my head is that if we fully use the potential of women given that we do better in education and have done for a century, if we fully use the potential of women in our society as well as we could, it would immediately add 11% to GDP, which is a pretty radical improvement. But we won't do it. So there's something else. It's not about merit. It's not about the economy. It's not about... It's something else. It's deeply ingrained, I think often religiously based, prejudices about a woman's role. And I think it is a kind of fear of um, unleashing the power of women. 
And, but of course, and if you're going to, and I think Polly has said this in one of her articles, and I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly, and I have often reminded my husband that the reason I have such high life insurance is because if I cark it, he's going to have to get a nanny and a housekeeper, whereas if while I'm alive, he doesn't have to have either, and I cost him nothing. So, That's a, the other thing. People go on about, you know, uh, well, you do two jobs. No, we do three jobs hmm. because to replace us would take two people. Plus, we lose our paperwork. That's three jobs. Yeah, exactly. Um, we seem to have entered uh, a perfect storm at the moment where women en masse have finally broken their silence and it's a number of hashtags, destroy the joint, me too. Um, it's, and we seem to now be talking, thank goodness, about violence and shame and humiliation and all those terribly negative um, emotions that we've been enduring en masse for, for decades and decades. What were the drivers, do you think, behind the dam wall breaking? I think it's really interesting that there's been a bit of generational argy-bargy over me too. There was some older um, women, uh, famously, I think Margaret Atwood and Catherine Deneuve and um, some French feminists who kind of got all huffy and said, you know, um, you're all being a bit fragile and we just sucked it up and gone on with it and what's wrong with you? And I actually thought that was unhelpful, um, but also I didn't blame them the way that some of the uh, younger feminists got very angry in response because my feeling always is that people do the best they can in the circumstances in which they find themselves. And that generation of women, they're a little bit older than I am but not that much, um, found themselves in a hostile workplace. Workplaces in a way that were compelled to take them. And they had to find a way to survive in that workplace. And if that meant there was no point in making a fuss about some guy being inappropriate or sleazy or making horrible jokes because you could have made a fuss about it, but no one would have listened to you and you would have been seen as difficult and you probably would have lost your job over the time or you certainly wouldn't have got ahead. And they read the writing on the wall and they found a way to survive. And that's a tribute to them. And any of us, if we'd been in that situation, would have tried to do the same. But it's because they survived in those hostile workplaces and therefore enabled more women who followed them to come into the workplace and to fundamentally change its nature that the following generation was able to speak up in the way that they did. And that was primarily because social media came along. And the, what that has enabled women and uh, LGBTQI people and people of colour and people with a disability, and I'm seeing an awful lot of um, posts now by adoptees who are telling their story, um, people who could never really get their stories heard before because, you know, you take... I can remember, you take a story to an editor and say, I want to write about this and to do with women, and you go, oh, we did women last month. <laughs> so you couldn't get anything up. And suddenly... With social media, it's given all of those people unmediated access to the public conversation for the first time in history and lo and behold, we want to hear about ourselves. We want to hear our stories. We are interested in them. Not everyone thinks like the editor of a national newspaper. This may shock them. Um, and 
what has happened is women were able to say, this happened to me. And instead of people going, that's embarrassing, don't tell anyone. Oh, you must be exaggerating. Of course they didn't do that. Oh, don't be silly. Don't cause trouble. Look, just suck it up and move on. All the things that were said to people. Women put it out there and other women said, me too. That happened to me too. And this happened and that happened and this happened. And the voices just went crazy. Now, me too, of course, was started by an American um, uh, woman of colour, uh, Tamara Burke, I think her name is, and uh, it was about survivors of sexual assault and it was there waiting for this moment in time where people started to talk about the um, harassment and it was from women all over the world of all different ages, millions and millions and millions of stories. You can't not listen to that. There's power in that. I mean, I often think about the Bill Cosby case. Bill Cosby had 60 accusers, all telling very similar stories. They started telling them. It's not that women didn't tell. It's that no one listened to them. No one cared. The, the first women were telling those stories in the 70s. No one paid any attention. I don't think they didn't believe them. I don't think anyone doesn't believe that Trump's 19 accusers. I don't think they think he didn't do it. They don't care. We have to accept that. They don't care. They didn't care. It was only when Me Too happened that Bill Cosby got convicted. So that has basically changed. The, and I think the word is for me, a long time ago I decided what feminism meant to me. And what it means to me is it is the fight by half the human race to be taken seriously by the other half. And what Hash Me Too has done, it, it has insisted that the hostility of workplaces to women and the way that is often expressed sexually and via sexual harassment and even assault in some cases and sexual humiliation must be taken seriously. And when Cosby's original accusers were not listened to, that is an example of women not being taken seriously. The fact that older women are completely ignored in this budget even though their need is so dire is an example of the fact that they are not taken seriously, their plight is not seen as important. It means we are not being seen. And I think that's what feminism has done. It has said, you will see us and you will hear us and you will take our stories seriously. We will insist you do. Of course, social media um, rides on the back of a wonderful invention called the internet. It's a black box in an office, I believe. No. <laughs> People who watch that show, sorry. Nerd moment. <laughs> um, but it's also been important in other ways in terms of driving change. For You talked right at the beginning that technology that liberated women was the contraceptive pill and the tampon. That this technology is also amazing for women beyond the hashtags is the internet itself. What are you seeing as some of the directions? You know, you have working daughters now, so what are you seeing as the way that's liberating, freeing up women to be, to fulfil their potential? Well, it's, first of all, our voices are getting heard and turns out there's an audience. Um, and the interesting thing is that older women are a tremendous audience and very, very slowly, uh, marketers are kind of belting themselves on the thick skull and going, oh, shit, 
Some of those older women have got money. Mm. Maybe we should pay attention to them. Um, and so having money, being a market, being able to um, make choices about what you want to listen to, what you want to watch, what you want to buy, what sort of festivals you want to attend, um, does have an effect on the world. Uh, and that is certainly starting to happen and social media is making that very clear. But it's also having effects in other ways as well. It's really turbocharged all the art groups who have stories to tell. I mean, I think, I think Indigenous um, rights is all over the world, including in Australia, has been turbocharged by the fact that Indigenous people can tell their stories and gain an audience and be listened to and taken seriously as well. Um, books like Dark Emu. So it's not just social media, it's social media aligned with creating a market, creating an interest, then you can sell books and films and, you know, um, build on all of that, which I think is incredibly important. But if someone had told me 10 years ago that Ireland, Ireland, would have legislated for same-sex marriage and would have legalised, repealed Amendment 8, legalised abortion and made it free, I would have told them they were dreaming. And I believe that it is social media and the ability of people to speak to one another without anyone interfering that has enabled those changes to take place. The um, revelations about uh, child sex abuse... Um, institution all over the world, I think, have been also able to be really um, listened to and absorbed by a combination of social media and mainstream media, and not to put too fine a point of it on it, women who have often led those investigations, and of course, it was a female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, who created the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse. And I think that women do uh, make a difference when they're in leadership positions. I don't believe that feminism is just about getting uh, white women into positions of power, but I do think it is important to have women at decision, and people of colour and rich diversity of people at decision-making tables because when they're not there, you end up with superannuation systems that don't take women's very different working lives into account. And you end up with poverty. So we do need women at the table and people of colour at the table and Indigenous people at the table and people with a disability. We're, we're hearing already about the NDIS and how that seems to unfortunately be... Um, not working the way that it was intended. And we need to hear those stories and we need to know what's going on, otherwise we don't know there's a problem and we can't fix it. So anger's a useful response then? Anger is wonderful. Me Too is about anger. For a very long time, men were allowed to show anger. When I was a girl, a child, the only person in the family who was ever allowed to express anger was the father. Nobody else was allowed to be angry. Now, I think women are um, getting in touch with their anger and feeling okay about bloody expressing it. And I think that's good. All comedy is actually, I think, redirected actor, anger. I mean, Hannah Gadsby says it absolutely up front in that wonderful Nanette, but I think, I mean, most of my um, humour is actually quite angry, if you analyse it. And I, I remember only 10 years or so ago, um, Christopher Hitchens, who's now 
been dead for some time, wrote a story that was on the front of Vanity Fair, Why Women Aren't Funny. Um, now, who are the funniest people in the world? And that's to do with getting in touch with their anger. When you have to be nice, it's not very funny. <laughs> well, it is when you do it like that. Um, but I'm doing it in an angry way. And I think that women getting in touch with their anger is very, very important, very, very powerful. Older women are furious, absolutely fucking furious, and they're right to be. And also the terrible trope of the angry black woman. Did anyone watch Get Kraken with Miranda Tapsell and, uh, yeah. Well, hallelujah. It's not comfortable and it scares people, but anger is, because if you take anger and if, if people grope you in the workplace, if they humiliate you, if they take credit for your work, if they talk over the top of you, if they treat you as a lesser person, if they refuse to take your ideas seriously, the human response to that is to feel angry. If you're not allowed to express that anger directly and honestly as anger, you will turn it into a depression and you will turn it in on yourself. And that is what I think women have done for generations. We have turned our anger inwards because we weren't allowed to use it outwards. Now, at last, we are taking that anger and we're saying, actually, you know what? This doesn't fucking belong to me. This belongs to you, you shit. <laughs> and um, that's awesome. Yeah. One of the issues you address from several angles in the book is this wonderful issue of invisibility. Um, I want to talk about, I want to unpack it though, I don't want to just go at it as a general idea because there's about three really great things you talked about. The first one is historical invisibility. Um, so the Rosalind Franklins and Ada Lovelaces of this world. Can we talk a little bit about why we were never taught about great women in history? And as you say about people stealing other people's ideas, there's precedent. Uh, when you do the research, it's horrifying. I, it actually, I found it deeply upsetting. Um, the very first calculating machine was invented by a woman called Ada Lovelace, who was actually Lord Byron's daughter. Isn't that incredible? Um, finally, at last, there is an Ada Lovelace Day. I think it's October 16. But she's never been acknowledged or given credit for it until very recently. Um, you know Gould's Book of Birds, very famous? Written by a man called John Gould, apparently. No, his wife Elizabeth. Not credited. Did all the paintings and drawings in that book. Unbelievable. Um, when President Kennedy decided he wanted Americans to be the first people in space, they asked for test pilots to come forward and they uh, gave the same tests to male and female test pilots. Out of 18 women who applied, 13 passed all the tests. Out of 35 men who applied, a far smaller percentage passed all the tests. But they said, no, no women may go into space. And when asked why, they made crude jokes. Yes, the astronauts are very much in favour of reserving 110 pounds of payload for recreational purposes, one wag said. Um, not realising there's a whole bunch of women whose life dreams are being dashed. They were not taken seriously. Uh, John Glenn, I think, was more honest. He said, well, it's just not part of our cultural norm. Um, so none of those women got to go into space. When, women's, uh, when women were included in the Civil Rights Act in America in 1964, 
They were quite literally included as a joke. Um, it was a segregationist because it was all about, um, it was Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, great society, I think, and he, it was mainly about um, including um, black Americans in the Civil Rights Act. But one wag, a segregationist from the South who didn't want this to pass, said, well, if we're going to give civil rights to black people, <laughs> we, we, we may as well give it to women. They all laughed and made lots of jokes. After There were 463 people in the American Congress at that time, 12 of whom were women. One of the women got up once the men had worn themselves out with laughing at this idea and said, well, if there was ever any doubt about women being second-class citizens, the laughter has put paid to that doubt, which reminded me forcibly of Chrissy of Blasey Ford. Do you remember in the... Um, the uh, hearings about uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who of course did become the judge, and she said indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter, which was the laughter of the two men while they assaulted her. This is absolutely archetypal, not taking women seriously. Um, the lack of heroes when I was a girl that were women, the lack of role models, the lack of people to aspire to, and then to find out actually there were a whole lot of women doing fantastic things. We just weren't allowed to know about them. It's hard not to see that as deliberate. It's really hard not to see that as deliberate. And one of the things that I think feminism is doing now is rediscovering and shining lights on those women who did remarkable things and then were disappeared. I've always loved Virginia Woolf's saying where she said, anonymous was a woman. And when you think about it, yeah, I bet she bloody was. And including, you know, every, in every field as well. I mean, I listen to classic FM and I just love it when they tell you all about these amazing female composers that wouldn't even be seeing or we wouldn't be hearing at all without this need to have a bit of a quota going, dare I say. Uh, and look, it's working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, we've talked about invisibility in terms of the GDP. We talked about the fact that that women's work doesn't matter and therefore doesn't, doesn't need to be accounted for. But, of course, the one that we're all very familiar with is the invisibility of ageing, um, which seems to affect ageing women a lot more than it seems to affect ageing men. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about um, what, the, as, in terms of uh, women raising the next generation of taxpayers, what can she expect as payment for these sacrifices um, once she's old? New start. <laughs> awesome. Uh, 500 and something a fortnight. Uh, Anglicare does a snapshot shot every year, they've probably just done one, um, of all the uh, rental properties in uh, Australia, available in Australia on one night of the year. And what they're looking for is the number that it would be um, affordable for somebody living on New Start and other forms of uh, the lowest government benefits. And last year, 2018, they found in the whole of Australia there were three. Three rental properties. So New Start is um, really wonderful. And uh, then if she makes it to 65 or 67, she'll get the um, pension. Uh, and um, that's it. Uh, it's really quite shocking that we basically, and whenever we do try to do something, I remember there was an attempt, wasn't there, to do something about childcare at one point in one budget and Joe Hockey expressed it as double dipping. Women were getting more than they were entitled to. Well, yes, go through every budget and you'll see just how well women have done out of them. It's in quite incredible. Um, and 
unfortunately, we still pay... We're, and the gender pay gap, despite the fact people tell us it doesn't exist, does exist. And so it's like a perfect storm. Women get paid less even when they're in work. Um, they're in work less often. They, their super contributions are less regular and come out of a smaller salary. They tend to work part-time. It goes on and on and on. And we tend to work in lower paid industries anyway. So we are our, our right to earn a decent living is still not taken seriously. And our contribution in both paid and unpaid work is still not taken seriously. And every single woman who is facing the possibility of living out of her car at the end of her life is an example of how we do not take women seriously. And the fact that this is not a national emergency is another indication that the fate of women is not taken seriously. And if anything, we're taken less seriously as we get older. Elder abuse is something else I talk about in the uh, book, and that disproportionately happens to women. And a lot of it is financial abuse by children. Frankly, this is urgent. Mm. I'm going to open the floor to questions. So I need the microphone brought over somewhere. I think we're having a microphone in the... There we go. While we're waiting for that, because we've had so much to talk about, I've hardly touched on anything, but while we're waiting for that, I was wanted to just touch on a, a very important issue. Sorry that it's right at the end. But we seem to also still be going around and around in circles about who owns a woman's body. Oh. <laughs> it's so dreary, isn't it? Um, it's like... I sometimes think that because we were once all in a woman's body, we seem to regard ourselves as still having tenants' rights. <laughs> to insist that a woman gestate and birth a child she does not want is to literally colonise her body. It is the basis of all freedom to have the freedom to decide what you do with your own body. And it is quite extraordinary to see people arguing otherwise. Um, it is wonderful to see countries like Ireland come to their senses. I was really moved by an elderly man who was interviewed before the vote went ahead on Amendment 8, but he was being asked what he was going to vote. And I think they picked him because they thought he was going to be a a cliché and be in it. And he said, oh, I'm going to be voting for repeal. And they said, well, I can't do the Irish accent. Um, why is that? And he said, I think we've been very hard on women in Ireland. And I think we are very hard on women across the board. And in New South Wales, abortion remains a crime. And we should change that as soon as we possibly can. Oh. And let me tell you, in Alabama... They have just uh, put forward a measure which would put uh, uh, give a sentence of 99 years to any woman seeking an abortion. That would be, in, in Australia, 65,000 women a year jailed for 99 years, most of whom are already mothers. Society would fall apart if that actually happened. Any law that's being broken that often is a bad law. Please.
Hi, I have a question for you about the very wonderful Gillian Triggs. I wonder whether um, the, the furor that surrounded her time as the Human Rights Commissioner in Australia, how much of that was driven by the fact that she was a woman in that role versus how she might have been received with similar um, opinions if her name was William, perhaps, instead of Gillian? What do you think? I think there's no doubt about it. Um, I did an article last year uh, about, because I was really interested in the whole lock her up, lock her up chant about Hillary Clinton, because um, if anyone ought to be locked up, I don't think it's her. And um, I looked into the number of world leaders who were women, and of in the last 50 years, I think 10% of countries have had a female leader. Of that tiny, that's 90% of countries haven't. So 10%, um, so of that tiny number, fully 25% of those women leaders have been accused of corruption, charged with corruption or jailed for corruption. Are we really sure that 25% of female leaders are that corrupt, more corrupt than men? Or do we simply see any woman who seeks power in her own right as intrinsically, that thing about Hillary Clinton, well, I just don't like her. I just don't like her. Yes, I really want a woman president, but not that woman. That, that What that is is I feel discomforted by the idea of a woman who is ambitious and who wants to wield power, and I think Gillian Triggs suffered from that as well. She was also a woman of integrity who was determined to do her job and they didn't like that. But I watched that Senate estimates hearing where those two appalling men treated her like dirt and all the other women on that panel, and I thought no man would be treated in this way. Next. Hi, I'm Sinead, and um, thank you for noting the Irish experience. As an Irish-Australian woman, it's been quite surreal to watch Ireland sort of surpass our position here in some way. So thank you for that. And thank you for this really important discussion within feminism as well. I think it's such an important thing that we haven't been talking enough about, and now we are, which is great. Um, I'm interested in how you think we can bridge the generation gap in feminism and what young feminists can learn from accidental feminists. Look, I've never been a, a terribly aware of the generation gap. Um, I, I take people as I find them, um, uh, and I, I wish that was true too. I have had to say gently occasionally on Twitter to a couple of um, younger feminists who don't like me, and that's fine. The fact that feminists disagree with one another is not a bad thing. Uh, we're not building a cult. Um, you know, the fact that feminists have different views is actually a symptom of a dynamic, vigorous and alive movement. So there is nothing wrong with women who think that I'm full of crap. That's fine, they're allowed to. I have had to go back to some of them and say to them, look, you can call me all the other names you want to, that's fine, but just a heads up, old is not an insult. Because there is a tendency for the young to think that old in and of itself is an insult. And, of course, it pains me to tell the young this, though it doesn't, I really enjoy it. Um, <laughs> they will be old so fast it will make their fucking head spin. <laughs> okay. We've really got to get through these questions now so okay. we get everyone to... Uh, short go, answers. Go. Yeah. Um, my name is Marion and I was born and bred in Belgium which is a little country between France and the Netherlands. 
and I came here at 35. And I would just wanted to say that things don't have to be that way. Um, I had a free education. I had free university education as well. In my country of origin, kids go to school from three, and that is paid by the public purse. And, and so in working life, and I had half my working life in Belgium and half here, um, women are much more valued for what they bring um, as themselves, not as women in particular. Uh, the big difference there is, though, um, is that we pay more taxes. And you will find that in most Western European countries, we pay more taxes, but there is so much more equality, mm. not only between the sexes, but also between rich and poor, yeah. also between people who have an, a health accident and the healthy, etc. And I see that the liberals here always insist on and make all of their campaign about taxes, mm. but there is much more than tax that matters. We're going to have to leave that as a comment, Jane. But I afraid. agree with you 100%. <laughs> Sorry it about that. It is the pernicious nature of neoliberalism. Um, yes, please join me in thanking Jane Caro. It's been enlightening, engaging, funny as we possible. We just I have run completely I'm out so of time. Sorry. You will have to come and ask Jane downstairs when she's signing your books. I'm so sorry. I've tried to get through as many as possible. But thank you, Jane Caro. And thank you, Meredith. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.